Welcome to the Immigrant Finance Podcast, a show dedicated to everything money, online business, and immigration, because immigrant families deserve to build generational wealth too. I'm your host, Adina, social entrepreneur, immigration attorney, and financial educator and coach for immigrant families. I created the Immigrant Finance Platform with my husband, Mauricio, who immigrated to the U.S. eight years ago after we struggled through the whole process of trying to figure out finances as an immigrant family alone. We wanted to share what we learned about building wealth with others along the way and created the Immigrant Finance School Group Coaching Program where we teach immigrants and their families like you how to manage their money, get started investing, and build online businesses in just weeks, all with group accountability and support. Our clients have been able to get started investing and develop lifelong plans to build generational wealth regardless of their immigration status actually launched an online business they've been dreaming of starting for years, bring in enough income to leave a job with a shitty boss, and book up their calendar for the rest of the month just after announcing their new coaching business. I'm coming to you with a new show several times a week with stories about online business lessons, money and mindset insights, and guest interviews to help you become financially empowered. Each episode will switch between personal finance and online business topics. Now let's get to this week's episode. Hi everyone, welcome. This is Adina here from Immigrant Finance. And we are so fortunate today to have Giselle Martinez with us, who is an immigration lawyer, and she's going to be providing in this training slash podcast recording um, a bit of an overview on immigration law, which is one of the it's actually the first time um, I'm having a guest come on and share more about immigration law. We usually focus more on the, the finance side of, of immigrant finance, but I'm very, very excited to have her expertise here. And so, well, first of all, welcome, Giselle. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm good. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak about immigration. I'm excited. <laughs> Thanks for making the time. Um, I'm, I'm really appreciative. And we, we first connected because Giselle actually is an alumni of our Immigrant Finance School program. She went through it and was such an amazing contributor to the program and was able to also add a lot of value from her background, answering some some questions too. So um, yeah, what, I guess you want to kind of tell us about how you found out about immigrant finance and a little bit about your story and connection to immigration. Sure. Um, so I found immigrant finance. Um, I think it was during the pandemic. I was I had just finished paid up, paying off my car, and I started thinking that I needed to do something more with my money. So I've always, I've always been a good saver. Um, mm-hmm. So I have that down. But I I really think that I needed more than. I didn't know what else I was going to do with my money. I was about to buy a house. So that was kind of what I was saving my money for. And then I said, well, what next? Like, what's the next thing I'm going to do with my money? So I, I'm i always on Instagram. <laughs> so I went on Instagram and I kind of did a search for probably finance or Latino or something related to being an immigrant or being a Hispanic and, and, and personal finance. And I found your, your um, page and I think it was like exactly what I was looking for. So that's kind of how um, I got to you. And one of the things that I kept thinking about for a while was how as an immigrant and as someone who's uh, Hispanic, how finance is 
I, I know very little about finance or like how it's different for me. And like the things that I, I um, learn about are not really geared to people like me. So I thought your program was perfect. And that's how I decided to, to join in. I'm glad I did because I learned a lot. Oh, thank you so much. And I don't, I don't think I knew that story. That That's great to hear. I'm really <laughs> glad you're able to find us um, and connect. And it was it was such a pleasure working with you because you like knew how to manage money in a lot of ways. And, and like you said, you're a really great saver. And you were very much like, how do I take it to the next level and get started with investing? You did a lot of really great mindset work too to start changing your relationship with money it was huge change <laughs> right, right yeah definitely yeah. um and then you asked me about my connection with immigration um i was born in colombia and i came to the u.s when i was 12 years old with my family um uh, we were eventually able to get our green cards through a family petition but it did take quite a while to to get there so i have at some point i was undocumented myself and my parents were mm -hmm. undocumented um, and also, um, I married, uh, my husband is Venezuelan and he also is an immigrant. Um, he also came when he was around 13 years old and he was actually DACA until very recently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so how did that lead you to then become an immigration lawyer? And I know you then founded, um, a nonprofit organization as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think going through the immigration process myself um then my 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 dad had a little bit of a hard time getting his green card so i actually helped him while i was in law school to to apply a petition for him um and uh, my uncle is an attorney and he did a little bit of um a pro bono immigration so i was helping him since i was young with little things here and there related to immigration law um so when i went to law school it kind of was the perfect fit of what I wanted to do and uh, what I'm passionate about. I, I really care about immigrants. I really want to help them just like uh, my family. So that's how I ended up in immigration. Um, and I opened my own nonprofit after working for, I worked for nonprofits, I worked for private practice. And at some point I decided um, with my partner, Melissa Marantes, um, we decided that Orlando needed more nonprofits. Uh, so in Florida, there's only two courts, one in Orlando, immigration courts. So there's one in Orlando and one in Miami. And Miami has tons of nonprofits that help immigrants, but Orlando only had one. Um, mm -hmm. So we thought it was a great idea to open a nonprofit. One, a nonprofit I used to work for before shut down because of lack of funding. Um, so we wanted to do something where it would meet that gap where people are not getting the uh, representation, um, low cost or pro bono representation in immigration court, and in a way where it's sustainable and was not going to shut down because of um, lack of funding. So it's been. Uh, quite an experience in the last five years. We've grown the nonprofit a lot. It's called Orlando Center for Justice. Um, uh, and so we keep helping more and more people. So we're pretty proud and excited about the organization. I was so excited to meet some of your colleagues. I, I did a um, little training for Giselle's staff on budgeting that was so fun. And you just had an amazing team. So how many people do you have working for you now in this nonprofit? Yes. So we have a total of 16 people, um, six attorneys, uh, and then 10 support staff. That is a huge deal. Just for people listening who don't know what that takes, um, I also work at a nonprofit in my day job as an immigration lawyer, and it is hard work to find that funding for that many people to pay their jobs, 
when it's a nonprofit, like you're not getting profits, you know, and to be able to help all these people and provide a need, um, a solution for that gap you identified in Orlando, that's just so incredible and says a lot about you, um, of what you've been doing to help a lot of people. So thank you, thank you again for taking the time to share your knowledge um, with our community here. And for today, we're gonna jump into just a little bit of training to start introducing people in our community more to know about the basics of immigration law. I mean, it's so, so complicated. So there's only so much we can cover in this in this conversation, but how would you start off to kind of introduce people um, the basics of immigration law? <laughs> so yeah, um, I actually do a, a one-on-one, an immigration one-on-one with every staff member that comes into my, uh, oh. working with me. Um, and usually when I do it, it takes about over two hours and I try to go through like a, a good overview of everything. <laughs> um, yeah. so, um, you know, we don't want to do that today. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's so many different ways to be able to get legal status in the United States. Uh, although at the same time they're limited, but there's a lot of ways, uh, to, uh, so we're talking about like family petitions, uh, you know, there's business petitions or uh, employment visas, um, investor visas, um, I don't think we're going to go through those today, so we're going to uh, kind of narrow it down. Uh, so I propose to talk about uh, to talk about um, asylum, which is something that I work with all the time. And a lot of my clients that come in, they are seeking asylum, so they're seeking protection um, from their countries. And then um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the humanitarian visas, which I, I believe that a lot of people don't know about. So the U visas, T visas, and VAWAs. Um, but yeah, it'll be hard to go over like a <laughs> overview of yeah. immigration. <laughs> very, very high level. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know if you, if you want me to kind of dive into a little bit of asylum or what. Well, before we dive in, um, so you, you gave a good quick summary of like what of the, some of the different types of immigration cases there are, but maybe just to orient people, um, you know, why do you even need an immigration case? Like what, what how does the immigration system work and... Um, how do people interact, come into contact with immigration law usually? Right. Um, so I, there are many different ways. So there's people that come into the United States legally, right? They come with a tourist visa or some sort of employment visa, student visa. Um, and then there's people that come into the United States uh, through the border uh, without the documentation. So they have what I call, they're not, they're EWI or they enter without inspection sometimes, or um, sometimes they, they, doesn't mean that they came in um, hiding, right? Sometimes they actually show up at the border and talk to immigration and let them know that they're seeking asylum. Um, but they don't have a visa to legally come into the United States. So a lot of times that's how clients end up coming to me, for example. Um, and then there's also uh, people who have been here for a very long time uh, who maybe have never had any connection or any um, um, encounter with immigration, but that at this point, maybe they have a family member who can petition for them. And there's also people who are outside and who have family here and who are 
petitioned by their family to come into the United States from, from abroad. So from um, either it could be a, a parent, um, a spouse, a child, uh, or even a sibling who can petition for them to come to the United States. That's a, a, a whole other story too of how long it takes, especially for for adult children of US citizens and, and permanent residents that can take many, many years depending on the country where they're from. And um, for um, uh, siblings, uh, even longer, you know, we're talking about uh, for Mexico, for example, close to 20 years or more to be able to come into, into the country, which is one of the things that, you know, sometimes we argue as immigration attorneys that you hear something about getting to the back of the line, right? And the thing that we want to explain to everyone is that there is no line uh, sometimes, or the line can be 20 years. And a lot of things can happen in the span of 20 years for someone to come in. Um, so my clients come from a variety of, of places, right? Sometimes they came in with a visa, sometimes came through the border, through a family petition, um, those kind of sort of uh, ways that they have a connection with, with immigration. Thank you. That was really helpful and very concise. <laughs> yeah, okay. Please continue jumping into asylum and, and some of the visas you were talking about. Sure, no problem. Yeah. Um, so I see a lot of, right now, a lot of my clients are uh, seeking asylum. Uh, and then I have clients from um, where I'm from. We have a lot of Venezuelans um, seeking asylum and a lot of Central Americans uh, seeking asylum. We don't get that many people from other countries here. Um, uh, let's say like maybe from Africa. I don't, I don't see that many, but I know people are coming from other continents and other countries as well. Um, but the core of my, my work is uh, Central American and Latin American asylum. Um, so one of the things that I like to explain to everyone, my clients, is um, that there's a, this misconception that just because something bad happened to you back in your country, you are going to get asylum. And unfortunately, the way that asylum, the U.S. asylum law is, it's really tough actually to be able to, to qualify for asylum. Um, Personally, I think it's sometimes very unfair, right? Because um, I think that people should be protected. Uh, if they're seeking their protection, we should kind of look into helping them and protecting them. Um, but because they don't meet, meet this very specific um, gu uh, guidelines or elements that the asylum requires, then they might not get asylum. Um, so kind of like to get a little bit technical, but the definition of, of asylum, someone to be able to apply for asylum, someone needs to meet the definition of, of a refugee. So as a person who is outside of any country of such person's nationality and who's unable or unwilling to return to, um, and is unable or unwilling to avail themselves of uh, the protection of that country because of persecution or a very uh, well-founded fear of persecution on a kind of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. So what does that all that mean? Um, so one of the things is like, what is persecution, right? Um, and that's kind of confusing for, for a lot of people. What is, what is the meaning of persecution? And even in the case law, everyone is confused. Like, how do you really define uh, persecution? Um, so just because something bad happened to you doesn't mean that you're going to meet the, the requirement, the, the meaning of persecution. Um, normally, at least I think every 
you know, across the country, courts define it differently uh, depending on where you are. But for example, where I'm from in the in Florida, we have we're in the 11th Circuit. Um, persecution requires more than just threats, right? Um, so it doesn't require physical harm, uh, but it does require um, a level of um, harm that was done to the person, either it could be psychological intimidation. And they look at kind of the cumulative effect of what happened to the person. Um, I have sometimes people who were threatened um, who come to me and they come to the United States because they are afraid. But um, if the threats are maybe isolated, maybe happen once and they don't really know why it was done to them, who did it, um, maybe after the threat, they still lived a couple of years in their country without issue, that is going to be problematic to be able to get a, asylum. The, the courts and or the agencies are not necessarily going to find persecution um, in that respect. Uh, but uh, again, I, I think the other thing is that people think, oh, something really bad must have happened to me. You know, maybe I must have been shot or or beat up, and that's also not necessary. So if there if there's a list of bad things that or harm that people did to you, you could meet the definition of of persecution. Um, but then the problem with asylum is that not only do you have to meet the definition of persecution, or you know, have been persecuted, but that persecution is to have a connection or a nexus or be on account of those uh, five um, grounds, right? The um, race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or a political opinion. And that's where I see a lot of issues in with my the way my clients explain their cases. Um, I see it a lot with my Venezuelan clients who are, tend to be a lot more educated um, and sometimes decide to do to file their asylums on their own um, or maybe with the assistance of a paralegal, not an attorney. Mm -hmm. And they end up not explaining really well what happened to them and why it happened to them. So like that why was someone hurting you or doing those things to you if you're not able to articulate that it had a connection with your political opinion, for example, in the case of Venezuelans, then you're not gonna get asylum. A lot of them exactly. sometimes are surprised, right? That they didn't uh, get asylum, even though like all these bad things happened to them. It's often the hardest the hardest piece to prove and really what requires um, good lawyering. So I think you're right to identify, like you really do need to work with a lawyer and get support because it, it doesn't make sense in terms of common sense, how to describe these things. You're like fitting it into these boxes that the law has created. And particularly right. for people, what I've noticed, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is the law has not caught up with the reality of why most people are fleeing persecution today. So that's kind of why we have to work these mental gymnastics almost to like fit someone's story into a way it can get granted for asylum, right? Definitely, it's that definitely an issue um, that I see, especially for, with my Central American clients and yeah. um, those who are fleeing domestic violence and gang um, um, persecution, um, because the law, yeah, like you say, the law sometimes doesn't really allow for those people, even though they really are fear for their lives and they really could um, even die if they were to go back. Yeah. 
but the way that the law is being interpreted it doesn't fit people like them for some reason. Um, so it can get very frustrating, especially um, the domestic violence cases for me are extremely sad when I yeah. hear really bad cases and I feel we might not even win, even though this person suffer tremendously when wow. in their country. We uh, were just so talking about before we started recording, there was um, this terrible case that came out under the Trump administration to try to end asylum for women fleeing gender-based violence. And thankfully it's been now overturned, um, but a lot of people really were harmed by that decision and the fallout. And I worked on a lot of those cases too, it's awful. Right, yeah, that, I, that's one of the cases I, uh, they actually I'm working on an appeal where I, when I prepared my client for the hearing and I knew I wasn't gonna win because of the way the case law was at the time, I, I really broke down uh, hearing yeah. the terrible things that she went through, um, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse by several people in her life as a child and hearing those stories and thinking, I'm going to go into court and I'm not going to win this case. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, hopefully now with the new case law, I'll be able to to appeal and, and <laughs> get yeah, the case no back on track. But it, it, it was very frustrating and it, it's still going to be probably, you know, frustrating and difficult going forward, um, although a little easier with the new, new case law. Yeah, it's hard work. This is really hard work. I'm glad you're kind of giving people a, a picture of what it what it's like to actually fight these cases. I mean, it can really be like going to war when you're going to immigration court, fighting for someone and the law is completely designed against them. Um, but yeah, so what would you say for people who, you know, maybe they're, they've been in this country a long time um, and they just kind of assume that there's no option for them because what you described, like the line doesn't actually exist and all that, but they may be kind of afraid to go back home. Um, what kind of steps could someone take to figure out if they could have an asylum claim? Um, well, it, one of the things that it'll be difficult for someone who's been here for a long time because of the one year deadline for asylum. Right. So um, if you, you must file asylum within one year of coming to the United States. And there's a few exceptions um, to this. Uh, one of them is if there's changed circumstances, right? So if your things in your country change since you came in, perhaps you could um, apply for asylum now. Um, now that there is other protections uh, that don't require the one year deadline, like withholding of removal um, or convention against torture, but those are, I think a little, much harder to, to get than, than asylum. <laughs> um, but going back to, it's so important to see an attorney for this um, and, mm -hmm. and get that guidance from, from an attorney because we might be able to, perhaps maybe you've been here for a long time, but if you're afraid to go back, um, an attorney could review your case and figure out that you do qualify for asylum or withholding and there, there is some, some hope to, to remain here. Um, with the protection of, of the United States. Yeah, and I'll put a link below to um, the American Immigration Lawyers Association directory where you can look up uh, lawyers in your area if that's something of interest. Great, and I think you were gonna also give us a little overview of U visas, T visas, VAWA, how do those work? Right, um, so I, 
I love you visas. <laughs> uh, well, sometimes I'll explain why. Uh, so U visas, um, they're all pretty similar in that they're, they're protecting people who have been victims here inside of the United States as opposed to asylum where you have to have the harm had to have happened outside of the United States. So to go over the U visa, U visa are is, um, visas for victims of crime inside of the United States um, who assist the police in the investigation of that crime. The um, important things about the U visa is that not just any crime qualifies. So normally it has to be a crime against the person. Uh, so I, one of the examples I always give is sometimes clients tell me, well, um, I ask them, have you been a victim of a crime in the United States? And they say, well, uh, sometime, one time someone came into my house and stole everything, but I wasn't there. So that most likely is not going to qualify because that was a crime against the person's property and not directly against the person. But things like domestic violence, I see a lot, um, aggravated battery, um, kidnapping, rape, sexual assault. Those are the types of um, crimes. And, and there's a long list. This is just a small list I'm naming um, that could allow you to qualify for a U visa. And the purpose of the U visa was um, to to encourage immigrants to be able to report those crimes to the police and not fear that they're going to be deported or put in immigration detention if they don't report the crime. So it really helps communities stay safer by, by allowing immigrants to report the crime. Uh, the One of the kind of challenges for the U visa is that you need to have reported the crime to the police or not the police, the, the, the authorities in general. And you need um, to have... Um, a certification from um, a law enforcement agency that you assisted. And that's where I ran mm -hmm. into a lot of issues sometimes where um, there, there's no requirement for this law enforcement to sign. I've had law enforcement tell me that um, they don't help immigrants. We don't help immigrants yeah. here. So they just don't sign. Um, I have them say, well, I don't need them anymore in the case, so why, why sign? Which is not what's the requirement to for the U visa, the U visa asks for the person to to assist in the investigation. They don't ask that the, they need be needed right now for for the case. Um, so that's a challenge. Uh, but the good thing about the U visa is that it has a pathway to residency and citizenship, and it does forgive a lot of things that normally in immigration are not forgiven, like entering uh, without inspection to the border having a prior deportation order is having some criminal uh, issues and that it could still be waived through through the U visa. So those are the positives. Another negative is that it takes forever to get a U visa. Yeah. Right now. It takes about six uh, years, five to six years to get the U visa. Uh, and meanwhile, my clients, um, you know, just have to keep waiting. Um, this year actually changed it. Now they're hopefully going to get a work permit while they wait. Which was oh, not amazing. Yeah, that that's was a big difference. That's yes, this is definitely gonna make a big difference because a lot of times, unfortunately, with my clients, like I would say, well, I kind of file it, but you know, see you in six years uh, when when they finally adjudicate it. So now at least they they'll be able to get some sort of benefit while they wait all those years. Definitely. Um, let me pause you right there because that is like such a connection for immigrant finance. Whenever there's something with like financial issues and immigration law, um, so important to highlight because we all know how important the right to work is. And, you know, lots and lots of people have to work to survive, even if they don't have a work permit. 
but if you can get access to a work permit, it's going to just give you a lot more options and also hopefully put you in a situation where, you know, you have more rights also at work, right? Um, so think about too how that comes in with immigration law and how that can be a way to have more financial options. There's also a work permit someone can apply for when they're applying for the asylum that uh, Giselle was mentioned earlier. That can be very complicated though, the timing of that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and it got more complicated in the last um, administration, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Do you have anything on that to add actually on the the process for a work permit when you're applying for asylum? Um, so it, it's been a struggle for the, in the last few years. So it used to be that after 180 days, uh, if the case was still pending, we, my clients would um, get a, a work permit. Mm -hmm. uh, then they changed it during the Trump administration to be 365 days uh, and uh, all these additional requirements um, uh, in the form. So they made it super difficult to be able to get a work permit. Um, right now, it's still difficult, uh, but it got a little easier with um, some class action lawsuits that happened. Um, so again, if you see an attorney, it'll be easier for the attorney to be able to help you get your work permit. But um, some of my clients are waiting over a year now to, after even you file, there's some delays in immigration. Um, wow. to even be with able the to class help. actions. Right, wow. yeah, so. Uh, that was unfortunate as well. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what about, uh, was it VAWAs next? Right, sure, uh, yeah, I'll uh, talk about VAWAs. So VAWAs are similar to the U visas, and sometimes people get them confused, but VAWA is for the Violence Against Women Act, and it helps immigrants who um, are victims of domestic violence and who are married to US citizens or permanent residents. Um, and that um, benefit is that it allows them to be able to get a green card, even if their their spouse does not want to help them uh, get the green card. If they got uh, separated from their spouse because of domestic violence. Um, the the important thing, something that I see a lot that people have this misconception through VAWA. Well, there's a few, but one of them too is that because it has women in the name, people think that it only applies to women, but it also applies to men who are victims of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's this misconception that like you have to report it like the U visa, but that's not the case. Um, you you could get a, a VAWA even if you never reported um, the abuse to the police or to any courts. Um, the other um, kind of misconception that I've seen uh, with VAWA um, is that it has to be physical abuse, right? And, and a lot of people have that misconception that to be a victim of violence or domestic violence, uh, it has to be physical abuse. And that is not the case at all. So VAWA includes um, um, uh, mental, you know, emotional, psychological abuse, uh, which sometimes it's hard to recognize. Uh, so that's something else that as attorneys, we're able to help the client get the proper evidence to prove that even though they were never physically abused, they they were psychologically abused. And there's a, this concept of the power and control that is exercised. Um, uh, this. Uh, People, you know, spouses 
exercise this uh, power and control, you know, with um, economic, you know, not letting the person leave the house, not letting them have friends. Um, that could still qualify as abuse for VAWA purposes. Um, so I think that's important to know because a lot of people maybe don't know they're, they're in an abusive relationship just because they've never been physically abused. Um, yeah. But in general, just again, the great thing about VAWA is that um, the person will be able to get a green card if they're able to prove um, those things. Great. And what about T visas? Um, so T visas, same thing, similar to the U visa, but in this case it's for victims of trafficking, of human trafficking. And so there's two types of human trafficking that it protects. So there's sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Um, when it comes to sex trafficking, it is a little easier to identify um, uh, because you know, if someone is forced uh, to have sexual relations in exchange for money, um, you can easily identify that the person um, suffers sex trafficking sometimes. Um, in the case of labor trafficking, that is very complicated. And even for me as an attorney, I didn't really know much until not too long what it entailed for labor trafficking. And actually, I think that has a connection to, to immigrant finance in that as immigrants, we we are taught to work really hard, right? So sometimes many immigrants that uh, they don't they don't know better. They they think they're just working hard, right? They 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 have to work hard to be able to get money, um, and they don't realize that they're in this trafficking situation where they are they have terrible working conditions. They have extremely long hours. They don't get paid sometimes. Maybe sometimes the, they don't get a check or sometimes they the employer maybe provides housing and food so they and they charge so much for housing and food that at the end the person doesn't have that much money left over for themselves and again maybe you think you're just working hard but in reality you're being um trafficked you're being a victim of human traffic trafficking so that's uh, something really important to note. So if you are uh, have been in that situation of being a victim of uh, sex trafficking or, or labor trafficking, um, you do have uh, to report this to the authorities. But the, the good thing about the T visa or the U visa is that you don't need the certification necessarily. It's helpful, but you don't need it. So then you, we don't have to deal with agencies who don't want to help immigrants uh, as long as you're able to prove that you tried to, to report that to the police or to the authorities. Um, and same thing as the U visa, eventually you will be able, you have, it has a pathway to, to, to residency and citizenship as well if, if your T visa gets, gets approved. That's really interesting. I never thought of T visas with the connection with immigrant finance. That's such a good point. I mean, now that you've stated, I can think of a lot of people I've talked to who might be eligible for a T visa. Right. It, it's something that um, I think we're underutilizing as immigration attorneys and that we don't know enough of. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm a big um, guilty, you know, guilty of this too, where I, something that I didn't know about uh, and I, I started kind of learning a little bit more and um, I think now at this point that yeah I, I might have talked 
in the past with people that could have qualified for for a T visa and I didn't know um, mm -hmm. to check for that. Do you know, because um, I imagine some people have this question, like, do you have to actually be not paid and have a paycheck withheld or can it be uh, more general abusive conditions? Um, and I don't know that many TV visas, so yeah. I don't know all the, but um, I'm not sure, but it maybe, yeah, there has to be this, this, you know, level of like fraud and coercion that okay. um, to be in, in, um, in that situation too. Um, I don't know for sure though, the answer. Yeah. Well, just to round it out, um, I mean, you're just making me think of like, again, just how important it is to take steps to be financially empowered when you're an immigrant, because even if, you know, you don't fit under that type of visa that you just described, the T visa, because it has the labor abuse situation hasn't risen to that level. There are always things you can do on your own to get your finances more in order so you can have more control, whether it be like just starting to budget for the first time so you can start to save $10 a month or whatever you can do to like save up to get out of that situation or give yourself a month where you can go in between jobs to find a better job with the employer is going to treat you better you know, um, or just like starting, like kind of like having an emergency fund, similar idea. I, I'm thinking of hearing you talk um, when my husband moved here, Mao, and the first few years he was in this country, he was treated really, really terribly by his employers. And I don't think there was fraud or coercion necessarily, but I mean, there were, I mean, there were times he would come home crying because he'd been treated so terribly. Um, and I know a lot of you I talked to go through that. So just think about like, if you're in that situation, it's so hard to imagine yourself empowered, but there are things, there are baby steps you can take to start to get out of that. And finances is a really important tool from what I've seen. I don't know if you have anything to add or on that piece. Yeah, I mean, there's so many issues that come with being an immigrant, right? You don't speak the language, you don't know how things work in the United States. You might think it's normal, maybe in your country it's normal, right? To work that many hours or that sometimes you don't get paid. I know, like I'm from Colombia and I, I know I have family members that's like, oh yeah, they didn't pay me this month or something. And to us, it's like, what? Like everyone get should be paid every month, but in some countries it might be normal. But here in the United States, it could uh, be a situation where it's labor trafficking. Um so that's something to to always be mindful of and and, and knowing your rights in the workplace um, is important. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for sharing this this really helpful introduction for people to start learning a little bit more about immigration law and some of their options. Really appreciate it. Um, where can people learn more about the great work you're doing in Orlando, maybe donate to your nonprofit, support you all? Sure. Um, so, my we have a website. It's OrlandoJustice.org. Uh, we do have uh, Instagram, which is at Orlando Center for Justice, um, and then we do have Facebook, Orlando Center for Justice, as well. Uh, we are uh, actually having a 5K fundraiser in January, which we're excited about. So, if anyone is in Orlando, they want to sign up, and um, we um, yeah we take donations uh any any help any little bit helps awesome thank you so much we really appreciate it
Thank Have you. Have a good rest of your day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Immigrant Finance Podcast. If you felt that this podcast has provided value or helped you anyway, we'd be so grateful if you would take the time to leave a review for us on iTunes. It really helps us be able to reach more people so we can help more people and make the impact we want to make. These little things really add up and make a difference. So thank you so much for considering, and we hope you have a great day. Thanks so much for listening to the Immigrant Finance Show. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already and leave us a review so we can reach more people to help. Also, did you know we started a free Facebook group for immigrant families who want to build generational wealth? We're doing free monthly trainings covering everything from investing to online business. Plus, you will be in there with a network of other inspiring members of our community. Make sure to join us at facebook.com slash groups slash immigrant finance. And we'll see you there.